Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. Welcome to Dan's Talks, and uh, today my guest is Minerva Perez, who is uh, director of OLA for Eastern Long Island, and uh, I want to welcome you to the program. OLA is an organization that, uh, tell us about it so we, we know. Okay, thank you, Dan. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, OLA stands for Organización Latino-Americana. It is an organization that was founded as a nonprofit in 2002. So we are 20 years old. And um, the organization, while focused on um, working with Latinos uh, within our community, uh, has expanded beyond that uh, in recent times, mainly around COVID, a little bit before COVID, uh, so that a lot of work that we're doing with a health focus uh, and a youth focus expands beyond Latino interests. So uh, that is something I'd love to share a bit more about. But our, in a nutshell, would be advocacy, education, and the arts. If I had to choose three pillars, those would be the pillars. <laughs> give me, a, give me a, a more specific example of the sorts of things that Ola does for the community. Sure. So we've uh, begun an initiative called Youth Connect. And Youth Connect is a, a mental health and emotional health focused uh, offering to middle and high schoolers. Um, that allows them to have direct connection to crisis counselors in English or Spanish, either by phone or by text. And that is something that we have launched across the entire East End. It is something that we found to be so important way before COVID uh, in terms of what youth and especially middle schoolers and high schoolers, what their true experiences are and why they don't just automatically reach out to some of the folks you think would be more obvious to reach out to, let's say a social worker or um, going directly to their parents. Youth have a desire to learn a bit more before they just step into something like that. And they don't wanna upset their parents. They don't wanna get their parents in trouble. They don't wanna have stigma follow them. And they want it to be anonymous, at least as long as it can be until they understand what that process might look like. And unfortunately for a lot of youth, they don't necessarily get to ask those questions um, before they just sort of step into uh, an arena of potential crisis where suddenly everyone knows or they feel that everyone knows uh, that they have no control over anything and that they're sorry that they, you know, that they kind of brought it up. So we're, we're offering a way for them to connect to us anonymously if they wish or not. We are going into high schools and middle schools. We just finished working with about 300 or close to 500 or so middle and high school students in Riverhead School District. We're working with Bridgehampton District, East Hampton District, going in and giving presentations on uh, important tools and important ways to uh, kind of get the kind of help that you need. And this is happening across, you know, all all backgrounds, uh, Black, White, Hispanic. What kind of tools uh, would that be? Well, depending upon what's going on. So we have students that are very honest with us, which is something that we find so important that 
if we're able to build a rapport with students in 30 minutes so that we're asking them to write on a piece of paper anonymously, what's something big that's going on in your life right now as a middle schooler or a high schooler? And they're writing something big anonymously that that moment for them to sort of transcend the, oh gosh, someone's going to know who it is. We need to value that. So first of all, we need to start listening and we need to have teens understand that whatever network they have in their lives, if they have a network, that these are the ways that they can receive that support is finding people that they feel that they can trust to listen to what might be going on with them without judgment, but to be there as support or guidance. And in a crisis mo moment, to be able to accept that guidance. There are moments that, that teens have where they are paralyzed with anxiety and they're sitting in a classroom and they can't just get up and walk out. But we talk about different tools and different ways that they can visualize, that they can breathe that they can understand and, and get through a moment. Maybe it's only 10 minutes, but it feels like an hour of absolute paralysis. These are real things that are going on. We don't have to read another New York Times article to understand that these, these things that are happening with our youth are real. They're not snowflake things. They're not fabricated. They're not weak. They are really experiencing these things. So the tools that we talk about are actual hands-on ways. And then we get texts in the middle of the, well, we, we have a, a crisis line uh, a helpline, I won't even say crisis, because you could text us or call us at any time if you're a middle schooler or a high schooler. And we get these texts and we run it from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m., seven days a week. It's free. It's what we are doing right now. And we're the only organization doing that on the East End. And this is in Spanish and in English. So we'll get texts where kids are talking about the fact that they can't sleep, that they're really nervous about the schoolwork that they're doing, that they can't tell their parents that they're struggling like this but they at least have one of our crisis counselors to text with. And then we're letting them know, hey, listen, what are you doing right now? What's some of your favorite music? What's, let, let, let's do a breathing exercise together, you know? And we'll do that over text. Okay, here, here's a link to a YouTube, you know, video for like one minute. Let's watch it together. You watch it and I'll watch it and let's do it together. So it's just having someone out there for you. And even if you don't know who they are, they don't know who you are, you know, we can be there for each other. And that's what we're doing with Youth Connect. What are some of the other programs that you offer? So some of the other programs that aren't mainly Latino focused is uh, we've been responsible during the pandemic anyway, for and even now, for helping to connect over 6,000 people to vaccines. We uh, got a CDC Foundation grant, Hispanic Federation grant. A, a lot of this focused on health. So Hispanic Federation grant right now is focused on not just vaccine and not even vaccine, but more sort of the lasting effects of what happens when you disconnect someone from their healthcare? What happens when someone stopped going to check their diabetes, stopped going to do their mammograms or their, their yearly screenings? Um, what, what is that effect? And it's an effect just on not that individual or that individual's family, but on our entire community when healthcare is, is uh, which is already difficult, is further broken by that the the pandemic disconnect so we are going to be working to uh try to reconnect people to the healthcare. we're working with northwell we're working with stony brook uh we've got a program that's very interesting called falls prevention that we're doing with stony brook and it's a, a wonderful very brand new grant to help with folks who are might be prone to falling that could be folks that are a little bit older or folks that have a chronic condition or maybe they just had a procedure whatever it may be. So we're going to be offering and getting training and offering classes uh, on balance 
And also, uh, believe it or not, in on Tai Chi, we're going to be doing Tai Chi in Spanish, and we're going to be gathering people together, and we're going to be, <laughs> and we're so excited. So we're going to be connecting to some of the groups that we, the most obvious ones might be some of the senior centers, uh, working with the towns, and and uh, and their and their uh, human res- uh, human services uh, departments. So you know, these are some examples. Uh, we have a scholarship program. We offer multi-year scholarships, and we do open that up outside of just Latino youth. Uh, we've been able to give a scholarship to an African-American young woman, a Shinnecock young man. Uh, and so we keep expanding that out uh, in, in ways that we can manage because I can't read a million essays, but we'll have youth activities, youth leadership activities. And then we'll then invite those youth to apply for our scholarships so we can kind of like manage it. Those are a few things that we're doing. And uh, do you have an office or a place where people can come or is most of this done uh, remotely or how is it happening? Well, we have, you know, at this point we have 13 uh, full-time staffers, which is amazing. Um, Back in 2016, when I started in February, uh, it was just me. Um, So it's, (laughs) it's been, it's been nice to see some other folks come on board and it's the most amazing team you could ever hope for. But so we are able to go out into the community if folks can't come to us, but we do have an office in East Hampton on the corner of Main Street, Newtown. So we're uh, centrally located. We're right above Prada, uh, of course, because it's East Hampton <laughs> Village. Uh, why not? Um, but it's not so much a walk-in. If you have to walk in, you can you could do that, but it's much better that you call and we can arrange a time if that's going to be good for you. Or sometimes we'll just have staff come to you. Tell me uh, about yourself and uh, how how uh, where you originally were from or were you raised here? I was born in Manhattan. I am Puerto Rican, but I'm Puerto Rican. Half of me is Puerto Rican, and the other half of me <laughs> is Italian and Polish, uh, believe it or not. So I uh, was born in Manhattan, but I was raised in Miami. And uh, and then I came back to uh, Manhattan for college, and I kind of stayed and then worked my way out to the east end of Long Island about 20 years ago. So I've been out here for about 20 years. Um, but in Miami, I was, um, you know, it's that's probably where I was most interested in kind of connecting with not so much my roots as much as my mentors were all women and they were all Latina, you know? So there you go. Uh, had it been another way, who knows what I'd be, maybe I'd be speaking Polish right now. I don't know. But, um, but I had a lot of wonderful influences uh, from Latina women and, um, and, and a lot of friends and all that. And so I, it was always sort of connected to me and, but I learned Spanish in school. I did not learn it at home. I probably heard more Yiddish growing up than I heard Spanish. (laughs) What did you study in college and where? I went to NYU and I went to Strasbourg for theater. So I studied theater, uh, but always in my mind, it was a level of justice. Uh, You know, should I go to law school? Should I be a social worker? Should I keep doing theater and film? And so what what I've found right now at this age is that um, I get to do a little bit of all of it. And that's the way I like it. So I feel like there's a wonderful work that we do. We do work with law enforcement. I just finished doing a training for Southhold Police on Latino diversity and and dialogue. We do that in Riverhead Police, Southampton Police, East Hampton Police, Shelter Island. So I I found that there's a way that I've been uh, able to sort of bring a lot of what I love into this work. And it just feeds me, and it allows me to give my best, and uh, and and I and I hope my best to the team as well as the community. But um, 
it's uh, it's how I'm, I'm I'm doing things, and it's so what, far. What brought you to the eastern end of Long Island? I used to come out every once in a while to Sag Harbor when my when I before I even had my daughter, and um, and I just loved it. And there was a certain time in my life where it it seemed like, even though I love the city, it was time to make a change, and uh, and it was uh, it was kind of like Sag Harbor or bust, which is kind of crazy since I'm. I'm not I'm not a, a, a person that has like a giant trust fund or something, um, but I was able to make it work and uh, brought my mom and my grandma out to live with me here in uh, from Florida, the poor people, and uh, from the beautiful warm weather out here. And um, and so it was a, it became it became a real home and a real community. I had been searching for that for a number of years, and I found it on the east end of Long Island with a number of groups, Latinos, theater people artists, locals that have been here forever, the, you know, Bayman uh, in, in Springs, you know, I, I've, I've found so many levels of community out here that I feel very comfortable and very happy to be a part of uh, in whatever way I can. I'm not a Bay woman, um, but, uh, you know, being able to work with the Bayman on a particular project uh, really felt right. It was like a Latino Bayman, you know, uh, collaboration, and no one would have thought that would have been something. Uh, but yeah. What was that all about? That all about? So there was a gentleman, I'm going to forget his name, it was a few years ago, oh my gosh, but they, he's a Bayman uh, in Springs, and he had reached out because they would have, um, they would get these wonderful hauls of fish, like porgies or other kinds of fish, but they're not able to process them because of certain rules, you know, regulations, they were only able to have them whole in in their space in, in, in Springs, and so he said, you know, what we found is that there's so many people that are so particular and they only want this part of the fish, but not that part of the fish. And, you know, but the whole fish gets wasted. And he's seen that there are some groups of people that really appreciate the whole fish. And, uh, and so uh, I said, you know what, let's try it. And so I had him take pictures on the boat as he was coming in. And then I would post those pictures out to the community and say, these are the fish that are coming in, be there at four 30. And you could buy these fish, you know, they're not free. You buy them, but they were, uh, and it w went really well. He had people kind of lining up and buying these fish whole, uh, and it was serving his needs. It was serving the community's needs. And it was just kind of a fun project. So we did that for, I think one or two seasons. Uh, but that's an example. I see. What uh, things are you uh, working on now uh, at o Ola? Did, by, by the way, how long has, did you found Ola or was it in existence? How long before? So it was founded in 2002 and you probably know one of the founders, Isabel uh, Scanlon, Isabel Sepulveda de Scanlon. Um, she yeah, was one of the founders. Yeah. I knew her well. Yeah, 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 exactly. So she's on the board still. She's on our board. She's very active. Um, but it was founded in 2002 by a few people in East Hampton as an East End organization. And I joined in 2006 as a volunteer when I soon after moving out here. And um, and I, I loved it. I, I joined because I was witnessing some pretty anti-immigrant, terrible uh, rhetoric happening with Steve Levy, the county exec at the time. I remember it well. <laughs> yep, yep. So I got involved then because I thought, who, you know, what's happening? Like, I, I grew up in Miami. It was a very, you know... Uh, mixed and, and 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 wonderful community. My school was a third African American, a third Latino, and a third white. And then I went to school in New York City, and I came out here, and I was like, "What is happening?" It's like 1940 or something. Uh, and this guy was just saying such horrible things. So I got involved then, and I was a volunteer for a while. But then I um, 
needed to step back from that. I had a full-time job. And then I stepped into the retreat and I, I, I was the retreat's domestic violence shelter director for six years. So I did that work as well. And, um, and essentially I, I enjoy being an advocate and, yeah. uh, and I enjoy that work and the retreat, I think can do some, some great work. And I, and that was, uh, and then, then I ended up going back to Ola, but as a paid person, the first time they ever hired a full-time executive director, um, that was paid, you know? So, uh, it was, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a risk for, for both me and Ola to say, okay, what is this going to look like? And that was February of, um, 2016 and then November happened and that happened. So um, there was a, you know, what, a lot. What do, you mean, what do you mean by November happened? Oh, uh, well, we had a new president named Donald yes. Trump. I think I remember who that was. <laughs> uh, so that, that kind of changed a bunch of things and, you know, but for good or for bad, it really, it really kind of cemented the role of Ola, which is not just as, um, advocacy or, you know, I'm not, we're not here to put out every fire, you know, we need to look at the center of, you know, how do we grow and, and sustain healthier, safer, more equitable communities. And you've got to have your eyes on those things and you don't assume they're going to happen because you, because you feel good about people, you work for it and it's a practice and you work for it every day and you have the hard conversation and the great conversation with the same person in the same week, you know, like you don't, you don't have the, 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 you know, the luxury of saying, Oh, that ruffled my feathers. I'm not talking about, no, you keep talking, you talk through it. And that's what Ola is doing. And, uh, and I'm, you know, and I, I love the work. When you mentioned advocacy, which is a little different from some of the other things you've talked about, mm -hmm. describe some of that work. Um, I could, I could talk about the really hard stuff or I could talk about the easier stuff. <laughs> Um, I will say sort of individual advocacy might be a person comes to us, this is a good example, and it's wage theft. They've worked for a company and they didn't get paid. And it, it you know, to the tune of maybe 20,000 or something, maybe they're, you know, they never, whatever. It, it can happen because people trust people and then suddenly before you know it. And so we'll, we'll study that, learn all the ins and outs of it, and maybe connect up with a lawyer and, and help that person through it. And then there are bigger levels of advocacy that we might end up doing with police departments or municipalities or healthcare. So those other, you know, uh, you know, back back during that other time, uh, 2017, 18 or so, when there was something called administrative warrants, I'll say it out loud because it was probably my biggest nightmare, and it and it all happened, is that um, administrative warrants were um, a way to get around having a judicially signed warrant to be able to exercise a search and seizure. Yes, I remember all this with ICE last With time. ICE, yeah. And so what the implications of it were huge. And even though I don't think there were a million different ways that those administrative warrants were exercised out on the East End, the fact that we weren't able to individually, because we have individual towns and villages and individual police departments, we've got 10 police departments, We've got 10 different court systems. We've got 24 school districts. That's a lot of silos. But even across our East End that we were not able to say, whoa, this is against the Constitution. We should not be doing this. It which would was, not. Which yeah. was uh, going into people's homes at night. It was having the ability to, to um, mainly to hand people over if I said, hey, listen, 
we've got an administrative warrant and we want that guy. We know that you have that guy in whatever capacity. Send him, to send him back where he came from. Yeah, to detain him, you know, but essentially that was going to be kind of the end of it if you detained him. And the problem with it was, is that those folks that, that ICE was having those administrative warrants for, I work with law enforcement to say, listen, if you can have ICE tell you what they want to hold for, and if it is some big thing and they were, you know, convicted of the big stuff, rape or murder, or they're doing all these things, then my gosh, you know, sure, potentially yes. But the reality is if they were convicted of those things, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have needed an administrative warrant. A judge would have signed a warrant in a heartbeat. These administrative warrants were not based on these, these violent crimes. They were based on these things that sometimes were complete administrative errors done in a tricky kind of way. Like I'm going to mail you a court date to the wrong address. Oh, you didn't show up. Now there's a warrant out for the fact that you violated a civil law. Uh, there, there were all kinds of shenanigans going on. And unfortunately, our local authorities kind of got pulled into a bigger sort of political fight that I feel, and I know, I don't feel, I saw it change the level of kind of connection that some of our community members could have with um, some of our local authorities. And so we are building that back up again. We are not saying, oh, that happened. Therefore, you know, we know that our local law enforcement want to have great connection with community members. And we've been building it up as much as we can ever since and trying to connect. How, how did we get that to sort of subside? Is at the time, I remember it was a period and then it got, seemed to get better and they stopped doing it, which. Uh, I mean, they still they still they still could do it. They still were doing it. I mean, we were working with people directly, you know, affected by these these raids. I was on I was actually called into Fox News, which scared me for a second. Sorry to everyone, but, you know, maybe now I'm starting to think, okay, they're doing a better job. But anyway, um, but they wanted to talk to me about different things um, on a little panel. And I got to talk about, you know, and they let me talk about the raids that were that just had happened like a week prior in, in Southampton. I think it was that. And that was directly ICE. So a lot of stuff that was happening, uh, local law enforcement couldn't even do anything about it. I would call them and say, what's going on? And they would say, Minerva, I don't even know. They just came in. So it's like we we had a we had and have a great rapport, but there were certain things that there was just no it was it was kind of like all bets were off, but it wasn't serving our community. You know, we don't live in a lawless, hor horrific community out here. We've got great community members, peaceful community members. We actually crafted something called the Peaceful Communities Protection Act that we were trying to get sort of put through our local governments and our local authorities to say, we are not going to connect people up with these administrative warrants, um, that we are not going to have the, these connections to ICE when we don't have to, because there were certain mandates that made it impossible to say no to certain things. And we didn't want to put our law enforcement in a position, in certain positions. So we were trying to be aware of that. But uh, the whole sanctuary city thing, I mean, you know, what, what that meant, you know, was we lived through a pretty horrific time together, I think all of us, because it you, you don't finger point at peaceful community members and say, you're the problem. They're the same people that during the pandemic became essential workers. They're the same people that helped keep this whole place going during one of the hardest times that we've all lived through when a bunch of other people flooded here because they were afraid of being in the city. We've got an amazing community and we have to support it and we have to recognize what we have. And it, it seems to either have subsided or if it didn't subside, I missed it because. Well, I mean, a, a lawsuit was one. A lot. The lawsuit by I think it was NYCLU, a lawsuit eventually after two and a half years was one. And then at that point, 
it was not lawful to uh, honor administrative warrants any longer. Yes, that's what I thought. So yeah. we're talking here about people knocking on doors in the middle of the night looking for somebody. Uh, but not but not just that, because because controlling ICE wasn't something that we were trying. We knew that we couldn't do that. What we were looking at is that if a person ends up in some sort of authority, you know, uh, hold could be that they um, drunk and disorderly, or it could be something major that maybe it was a domestic violence incident um, that. And, and maybe the, it was a really bad guy, you know, who knows. But in, in the instances where the, the, a person was being held by authorities and ICE got wind of that, that ICE could then say, hey, listen, I know you have Joe Schmo. I have an administrative warrant for him. I need you to hold him. And, you know, and it started off with 48 hours and then uh, it kind of dwindled to like, okay, maybe like 10 hours, five hours, two hours. The reality was that, if it's an administrative warrant, it's not a judicially signed warrant and it's not something that should be honored. And, and quite honestly, ICE, if they needed to, could have gotten a, a judge to sign a warrant for, for a bad guy, you know, for someone who they knew was a bad guy and for a criminal reason. And as it turns out, ICE had their ways of getting a hold of people where they didn't even have to have those administrative warrants, you know? I mean, they, they had a lot of power. And so I just, it, our local authorities, they, they unfortunately got dragged into a lot of it. and. And I'd like to never see that happen again. I'd like to see the East End stand on its own feet and, and say, we've got individual authorities here in villages and towns, and we know what's best for our communities, and we're going to honor our communities. That's what I'd like to see. I'd like it never to happen again, but God forbid it does, and we find ourselves in that situation again. Let's let's really look at the at the blessing that we have in our community. Thank you for being on the podcast. Um, I really appreciate this. You're welcome. And, uh, um, we've kind of run out of time, okay. so I'm going to say goodbye, and uh, I will see you soon. Thank and you, Dan. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye. Okay, bye.